0: Joseph and I'm Nick. Uh, oh, Just, what? Wait, do I say it? God, I feel like I haven't done it in so long. It's only been a week. <laughs> oh my god, and this is Fish Jelly. Happy New Year! Happy New Year. Uh, today is January 2nd.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, it's been a very busy week. I'm um, re- yeah, yes, we're recording this pretty late at night. We moved into our new house. On.
1: Uh, yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus.
0: Yeah, but we had like three days or four days prior to getting.
1: We've been moving stuff since last Tuesday.
0: We've been moving things since last Tuesday because we there was like the move-in date was like a moving target, so securing movers was difficult, and we ultimately had several days free that we didn't want to waste so we just rented a van and moved smaller things on our own which yeah. amounted to a lot of stuff because it's I mean it's mostly all of your movies and books so much
1: yep there's like uh, the two libraries worth of things yeah
0: and then the movers came and did all the big things
1: oh which is always moving is traumatic and i don't mean well, I mean, even, listen, well, you know, it, uh, what, the place we moved into is four stories, so having, you know, these poor guys it, <laughs> carry a king-sized mattress <laughs> up to the fourth floor was like, oh my god. And a dresser that is very heavy. Yes, and they did it.
0: Uh, so, very grateful for that. I definitely couldn't have done it
1: with my weak uh, constitution. The last time you and I tried to move a piece of furniture through a stairwell, it was 2010, and it got stuck. And then Joseph thought it was, would be a good idea to live. Well, I've told this story many times. So this was when I first
0: moved in with Nick. He lived in a building that was uh, made in like 1893. Mm-hmm. And we, it was a tiny little one-bedroom apartment. It was kind of raggedy. Because it was old. And you had these two big couches in your living room. Mm -hmm. One of them was a pull-out sofa, and the other was this long couch. So we are starting to move things out of the apartment. And it was like a Sunday night, and it was in the evening. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And we get to the biggest item, which is this large-ass couch, and we get it out of the front door of the apartment, Mm -hmm. and we try to go down the stairs because you were on the second floor, Mm -hmm. and the stairwell was so narrow, and it had a tight turn. And I'm just like, I can't figure out how to do this. So finally I ask you, (laughs) how did you get this up here? And Nick says, oh, this couch came with the apartment. When I tell you I was so annoyed, like... (laughs) I'm like I can't believe that you kept a, a like a random couch that you don't know
1: <laughs> Okay, well, before, but anyway, since you had to just of course add that detail to shame me uh to the world, I was also 22 and the other couch uh was the the um with the pull out was the very first piece of furniture I bought on my own as a young adult. Uh But anyway, we
0: to to, to finish the story, we can't get it Down the stairs and it gets stuck because like in the process of trying, I slipped, the couch fell out of my hands. It broke the window. It broke a stained glass window and it was stuck. Yeah. So me being me, I was like, well, I guess this is the end. Like, like it is what it is. You said, let's leave it here. Yeah, let's leave it there. (laughs) And then it'll get, you know, the the building manager will have to figure it out and I'm sure we'll get charged, but whatever. Like, like I can't do this. And, of course, Nick being Nick is like, we're going to figure it out. So he drives to a 24-hour Walmart, like half an hour. Because that's all there was. And he buys, like, a handsaw. Sure did. Like the kind that makes that whoa-whoa-whoa sound when you get it. And you saw this couch in half. I sure did. And by this point, it's like 1 in the morning. No, it was like 3 in the morning. 3 in the morning. That's why I had to go to Walmart, because it was already almost 1. Okay. You saw this couch in half... We're able to get it out of there. To
1: fucking metal.
0: And it was the winter.
1: It was... No, it wasn't. It was summer. Was it warm? It was
0: warm enough, yeah. Okay, never mind. We get it out, and the building manager, who was a friendly enough guy, he's like... He was a friend of Dorothy. He's like, what were you guys doing? Why did you go this way? And then he explains to us that on the other side of the building are these service stairs, which are much bigger.
1: Which, you know, the years... And that's
0: how they got the couch up on Who, whomever owned it before Nick,
1: Some man named Bobby. Uh, did, you know, all the years I lived in that apartment, I never, I never knew that side was bigger because I never went up that. We never used that entrance because we to were To tell
0: another moving story um, that always sends chills up my spine, when I... I moved my mom from Louisiana... Oh to Nevada, so drove out there, packed up her truck, or p- packed up the moving truck, which was this huge truck filled with stuff, and then her car, which is an important point of the story, was connected to this huge trailer truck, and it was on a flatbed. So when we go to pick up the truck, the person who, uh, like the 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 sales associate or whatever, the, the rental person was in a hurry and didn't have time to do anything and was like, well, I have to go. If you can't get here by this time, you can't have the truck. So we rush out there. He gives us the truck and he's like, oh, the trailer, you just put it on and that's it. So we put the trailer on, get my mom's car on it, uh, attach it you know, to, to the trailer, fill with stuff and make our way to the West Coast. And we drive all the way safely we get to Nevada and my brother-in-law um, works in a body shop and he uh, they have contracts with like U-Haul, USPS. He does a lot of work on um, specifically U-Haul trucks. So we get to his house and he's helping me with the removing the trailer from the truck, but I had walked away because I was talking to my sister and my mom. We were all catching up. And we turn and look at him, and he's already a pale Jewish man, Mm -hmm. but he looked white as a ghost. Mm -hmm. And he was like almost freaking out, to the point where my sister knew something was wrong, and she ran over. And then I can hear her say like, oh my God. So my mom and I walk over to them like, what's wrong? Like I thought I had like, there was a dead dog underneath the car, I don't know. A body. We find out that I didn't attach the trailer Properly to the truck So you know how it has that ball hitch. Yeah, it's supposed to like Be fully in like it's supposed to connect fully like snap mm-hmm. and then you lock it That shit. I had just put it on top of the ball <laughs> So the only thing really holding the trailer to the truck Was the weight of the car pressing down on the ball So when he finally took it off you could see that there was like a little dent in the ball and he's like, that is the only thing that kept that thing on there. And he said, the worst part is, I had also connected the chains. So in addition to the ball, there are two chains that attach to the truck. And he's like, we have seen so many times where people don't attach it correctly, and the trailer falls off, and the chains kind of keep it. Mm-hmm. But when you're only going like 20 miles an hour, it's, it's enough to stop it. But... I was driving on the interstate for twelve, fifteen hundred 1,500 miles. And he's like, you're doing 70 miles an hour, and that trailer with a car on top detaches and the chain, it would have flipped that truck, potentially, or you would have lost control. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you were, you could have fallen off a bridge. Yeah. I get chills thinking about it, because I'm like, I could have killed myself, killed my mom, like, because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So that's another moving story. But anyway...
1: <laughs> yeah, there's. You have another one though, where you were moving with your mother in the cars that didn't start on fire. Bitch, one. So
0: this was the. Did you not? I forgot about that. See, I'm. I oh. have so many horrible moving wait, stories.
1: Wait, you forgot about something? Yeah. Hmm.
0: So this was 1999, and I was living in Mobile, Alabama, and decided to move back to Vegas. Which
1: can we pause for a minute and just. Uh...
0: I don't know what I was thinking, and it's a long story that I'll tell for, say for another day, but it was a nice opportunity, and like, I had a gig going, and I could transfer colleges, so it seemed to be smart, but living in Mobile was not, not cute, (laughs) but not in 1998 uh, as a gay brown person, but uh, we, so I decided to move back to Vegas so I could finish college, and Packed up my truck, just like the truck in the previous story. Same kind of truck. A huge, huge truck. And then I had my car attached to the back of this truck. But this time it wasn't on a bed. It was just the kind of uh, attachment where the car, like two wheels are on the ground. So the back wheels of my car were like spinning on the highway with the truck I was driving. Mm -hmm. So we're driving um, from Alabama to Nevada and Oh, my God. Torrential rain. I had pulled into a small hotel once, and the guy was like... Like, the person who worked there was... Like, ran out in the rain screaming at me, like, don't come in here. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And the person screaming, like, don't pull in, don't pull in. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, there's there's nothing here. I pull in and realize the reason he was doing that is because there's nowhere to turn around. Mm -hmm. And the kind of trailer I had... you Like... You can't just back up straight. The the car's gonna go one way or the other and there's nowhere to go. So this man in the pouring rain had to help me detach my car. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the story. In the pouring rain, detach my car, move my car, we had to both manually like move this trailer tow thing, back the big truck out, and then I had to reattach it. Well, in the process of reattaching it, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So I'm driving and by this point, The rain has subsided enough that there's no precipitation. Driving down the interstate, and all these people are like waving at me and honking at me. And I'm like, and they're pointing like back. So, of course, I pull over, and all I see is smoke. And my stupid ass, when I put that car, because I didn't originally attach my car to the truck, the person at the U-Haul did. Right. But when I reattached it, I left the emergency brake on. Oh. So I drove for, like, an hour doing 70 miles an hour with that car's back wheels, like, locked. So the back, like, the the brakes had caught on fire. The tires were totally torn up. (laughs) So,
1: you know, but to be fair, we, Joseph did drive us across country from Minnesota to Los Angeles just fine with a, a car attached to the back, a trailer.
0: I've I've done this drive m- more than once. So you can, you uh, can with, do it with with a large truck and a car attached. I've done it three times in with that specific scenario. Twice uh, they were uh, just terrible, and then the one time with you, it was fine. And that time we had two sphinx cats. We did. Who we had to drug. We
1: did drug. And them. the drugs
0: didn't really. They resisted
1: the drugs. Yes, they did.
0: But the vet explained that because the cats are nocturnal, like the, the drugs will work during the day.
1: Oh yeah, at night. So
0: so during the day, the two cats look like they look like uh, like corpses. They were frozen and solid. <laughs> but at night, they were alive, and we were in these hotel rooms trying to be discreet with these two cats, and they were, oh, that was not good because <clears throat> couldn't sleep.
1: Yeah, that was hard.
0: But anyway, we are moved in now. Now we have the long uh, oh. chore of putting our house together. We did get messages about people wanting to send housewarming gifts.
1: Oh God!
0: So I will have to share a PO box because <laughs> I will accept gifts. I'm not too. Uh, I'm not too cute to accept a gift. Um, so I'll share a PO box. That's how I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I'm kidding. Um, but. Just uh, people's kind words uh, is all we really need. But.
1: (laughs) He He doesn't really. But I do like
0: wine and candles, so whatever.
1: (laughs) What did you get for Christmas,
0: huh? Uh, Candles. Uh huh. Yeah, some nice candles. Yeah. Nick got me. um, Anthropology sells this fucking enormous candle Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't buy for myself because I thought it was too much money, but Nick bought
1: it for me. Um, yeah, that was, but the, even the ladies working at the, behind the desk were like, Oh, you got the big one.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, I got a really nice Le Labo candle. Again, another item that I wanted, but wouldn't buy for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's nice. All right. So we spent a lot of time on that. Moving on.
1: Well, it's been an exhausting week. Queen
0: of the universe. We watched the finale. Oh
1: yeah, that happened.
0: The top three were grad queen. Ada Vox and Arya B. dying. Mm-hmm. They each had to perform. They each did two songs. The first song was a holiday, hol- yeah, like supposed, supposed to be like a Christmas theme song. And then the second song they had to sing was some like a showstopper. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first to go was who? went first? Grad Queen. Grad Queen. She did. Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Rock, yeah, yeah. I thought she killed it. She made it her own. It was fun. Sure. Then Aria B. Cassidyne did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which already was weird because Grad Queen had a full-on set, like dancers, full production. And then Aria B. Cassidyne comes out wearing kitten heels and like an ill-fitting tuxedo with top hat. And she sings Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer beautifully. But it's just not the kind of song that... Well, she tried to do, like, the sexy... Like, jazzy version. Yeah. That
1: just didn't... It was very... um, Oh, God. What's her name? Uh, It felt Dionne Warwick, but should have been Eartha Kitt.
0: It was an odd choice because it's not a super catchy song. It's not... I mean, when we think of, like, Christmas songs, that's not one that I would think of. Uh, And then she didn't have any... Dancers, no stage production. So I'm so curious. I'm sure we'll find out in the coming months. Like she'll do some interview and explain what happened. And then Ada Vox did a song called Pure Imagination. Pure Imagination. It's sung
1: by Gene Wilder originally.
0: It's very interesting. And she did a fantastic job. Yeah. Then they did their Showstoppers. Um, and I thought. So Arya B. Cassidyne, she. Uh, her vocals were not on point for her showstopper, unfortunately.
1: She was, um, you know, when you when you do something that is, there's, there's too much of a strain and you could tell. Yeah, and, she was trying she, too and hard. And she faltered, yeah. But
0: Ada Vox and Grag Queen did a oh. f- tremendous job. Uh, the winner of the first season of Queen of the Universe was, or is, Greg Queen.
1: Um, and I did like her rise up uh, by Andre Day. Day that was very well done but you know my favorite overall was Ada Vox I think the best like
0: someone who I you said that she kind of was like Susan Boyle and I think that
1: I only said that because it, no, I said if Susan Boyle can be notable Ada Vox needs to be no notable.
0: no no yes you you weren't comparing them except to say that I I think that they are similar and that Ada Vox has a beautiful voice and I think if like it, she could get like Good producers, good writers, to give her material. Like, I think she could have a beautiful album. I just don't think that she has the... She's a great artist and a fantastic singer and will have an amazing career. But when I compare her to Grad Queen, Grad Queen also has an amazing voice with a greater range. Because... Ada Vox's voice is due to a congenital disorder that caused her vocal cords to be, like, abnormal in some way. And that's why she speaks with a very high voice. She and, does. And can sing at that register. But she doesn't have, like, a deep tone. So, she. I feel like she's kind of limited, but a beautiful, beautiful voice. Grad Queen, her range is, like, out of this world. And then she has her own little, like, she puts her own little stank on it. And every song she did felt like... To me, I would say that grad queen is like if Amy Winehouse were like a drag queen with better vocals. Because she has that like sort of raspy, mm-hmm. gravelly voice, but with a lot of power and control. And then for she's not even like a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. And when she's speaking in English, it's a little crunchy. But she uh, le- hits those lyrics perfectly and somehow makes them her own. It's very interesting. It's
1: interesting. But I thought both her and Ada Vox it's uh what it's this it seemed effortless.
0: Yes. I I could see Drag Queen being like like in movies and television. But
1: then the it just begs the question for this television, this reality reality television series based on drag queens that can sing and it comes down to maybe 3 that are very well. Uh, plus, uh, uh, what's her name from Lavois? Lavoie, I think, is a, a great singer. Everyone
0: on the show could sing except Juju B. Uh,
1: but what was every one of them a good singer though? I mean, they're they're better
0: than you know. I mean, they were. I think they were all talented singer vocalists except Juju B. Um, but I, I just was. There were only six episodes, yeah, and they got rid of these people so quickly. So I didn't like that. We also don't get any behind the scenes of how they yeah.
1: prepare. Oh, do you want to speak on the opening uh, of the lip sync? Yeah, the final episode had all the queen eliminated queens come back, and they
0: did like this lip sync performance t- together,
1: and it felt very much like All, all Stars, Stars season three, three
0: where they do the like live, mm-hmm. except they're not singing live. Which I thought was weird because the entire premise of Queen of the Universe is that they don't lip sync and then this final performance they're all lip syncing. It was fun to see them but but then not really because we only had five, well six episodes total so we really don't have a lot. I didn't feel connected to any of these queens. We don't really hear them interacting with each other. Those feels th- those
1: moments ve- feel very forced. And, and when conviviate. we do
0: see them behind the scenes, it, it's always them just sitting in like backstage and with these forced moments. So I didn't, I don't feel super connected to these queens. So I didn't need to see them come back. Um, I would like, I would watch season two. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be longer so we can get to know these queens better because some of these people got kicked off. Like after one episode, after one, like, like nine, nine of them. Yeah, nine people got kicked off by the second episode. I, that's. I mean that. I'm assuming all of their drag is provided by the show that they don't have to make their own drag. So in that regard, it's not like they have to spend all this money like on RuPaul's Drag Race. But right, it would be nice to get to know these people because really it just feels like a karaoke, like like we're watching karaoke. But good karaoke. Yeah, but good karaoke. So anyway we're gonna do something different because in the midst of all of our moving I didn't prepare anything so Nick is going to so uh, just because I know you have just to help you organize you can see the time up here so just yeah, yeah, yeah. try to keep the flow going I guess oh
1: girl uh, let,
0: let let's see how you do
1: don't you test me you're well you're being tested right now so go ahead mm. As are you, as are you. Um, (laughs) Okay. New releases uh, this week. Uh, You know, I don't think we saw anything, but The Lost Daughter opened wide, or uh, I believe became available to stream on Netflix. It had a theatrical release prior to that. We reviewed that movie. We did. So that came out. Uh, And then Jockey, which we didn't review, but I saw out of Sundance. Last year, or, yeah, early 2021. About that horse racer? Yeah. The,
0: the trailer I saw at True to the Game 3? <laughs> yeah. You didn't tell me you saw that.
1: I saw it at Sundance last January.
0: Oh, uh, I was at, asking about that movie, and you didn't mention that you saw
1: it. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I did. That was one of the ones they sent um, liquor over to her house for. Oh. Uh, but it, it's really worth seeing for a, a pretty good Clifton College Jr. Uh, role. Who you've seen in things and also molly parker but yeah we didn't we were moving this week so i didn't make an effort for you to see it as well um and then uh for some for whatever reason we had uh, kind of some time as you said we were waiting uh with the moving target of the move dates. so we did we actually watched more than usual i think uh for fun at home. But I started making my way through Severn Films released um, All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror, which if you saw the documentary um, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, uh, featuring Kayla Yanis, uh, that is all about folk horror, uh, I was absolutely fascinated by that documentary, which focused on you know, three folk horror films in particular, one of them being the original Wicker Man, which is a favorite of mine. But I watched the documentary and paused it a bunch uh, writing down film titles, and so I was very uh, pleased to see that many of those films mentioned in the documentary were released in this really extravagant collection. So I had a chance to work through four of those titles uh, last week. Uh, my favorite being thus far, Eyes of Fire, a 1983 film by Avery Krauss, which is a, a period piece uh, Kind of similar in mind to The Witch, where these uh, early settlers expel this preacher for an act of adultery, and a him and a small band of people wander off into the woods and make their own settlements in this territory uh, where Native American spirits uh, haunt them. Uh, which the special effects, the mood, very impressive. The other three I happen to watch randomly all happen to be from Australia, uh, one of them being a film called Celia, uh, 1989. I believe the debut of director Ann Turner who's done a couple of other things I am aware of. Uh, period piece set in the late 50s about a little girl growing up. Um, and it, to me this didn't really fit in with the folk horror uh, section but it, it is very well done. Uh, adultery and uh, the threat of communism uh, determining her daily existence. Uh, Another film, The Dreaming, by Mario Andrioccio from 1988, also Australian, is also interesting. Uh, This doctor treats a a sick uh, aborigine woman and begins to be haunted and have dreams and uh, her father is also involved. That I didn't like as well besides the mood. Um, And then Joseph watched part of Alison's birthday with me, which was Interesting, you of course fell asleep, but uh, about a young woman that's been primed since she was a child and snatched out of the hospital to be the vessel for this old, this spirit inhabiting this old woman's body. Okay. Which was interesting. Uh, but also very predictable. Uh, I caught up with Belle, a Japanese animated film by Mamoru Hosada, which was a can last year, but I missed it there. Uh, that's interesting. It's At two hours, I feel like it's a little long. It could have been cut, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes, and I would have been happier with it. Uh, and also, inserts. Uh, I had this disc lying around, and I watched it. uh 1975 film that was rated NC-17, starring Richard Dreyfuss and Veronica Cartwright and Bob Hoskins and Jessica Harper, uh, directed by John Byram, who directed quite a few films I feel that everybody seems to have forgotten about. Maybe the most notable, in my mind, being... Um, he adapted The Razor's Edge in 1984 with Bill Murray, uh, which Bill Murray only agreed to do Ghostbusters to get The Razor's Edge made, and then of course that ended up being a flop. But uh, Inserts is about a director of the silent era who hasn't been able to be successful in the talkies, so now he directs silent like porn skin flicks uh, at his mansion that he refuses to leave. Uh, it's a little stagey. but. If you like any of those people interest in it, I recommend it. Um, and then on New Year's Eve, as we were packing, I caught up with the film Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk, uh, directed by Ilya Schuler, which is interesting and fun, but also, again, very familiar. And, of course, it's from the writer of John Wick, and it feels like John Wick, mixed with Death Wish, uh... Although, there were a lot of people I liked in it besides Odenkirk, including Rizza, who strangely plays his brother, Christopher Lloyd as his dad, Michael Ironside as his father-in-law, and Connie Nielsen as his wife. Uh, enjoyable, but don't expect too much for it. Uh, and then Joseph and I caught up with some other things, um, such as My Name is Polly Murray. That's right.
0: That documentary is on... Wait, no, you had a screener for I had a screener,
1: for for, an award screener, yeah. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. sitting
0: on my leg. I fell asleep. <laughs> oh, yeah, that happens. So, Polly Murray was a... She was a lot of things. She was a lot of things. And, um, you know, she... Well, technically...
1: I've, somebody Wait, her, this.
0: her pronouns are... Um, it's interesting because the the documentary spends a lot of time talking about her sexuality and gender identity. And it's probably safe to say that she that Polly would have identified as either non-binary or Polly may have been a trans man. So some people in the documentary um, choose to refer to Polly using the pronoun they, or they just say Polly because they feel like that honors her, them, Polly. But Polly is a remarkable person Mm -hmm. and the documentary does a really good job of breaking down polly's accomplishments Mm -hmm. and how their involvement in several like prominent court cases came to be
1: well they became a lawyer uh, and then eventually a priest but uh and then yeah their trajectory from become like Becoming a lawyer to ultimately
0: being a priest and, and then writing their autobiography or mm-hmm. memoirs. Yeah, it's just remarkable. And a lot of. Polly was very private about certain aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. So. Polly didn't. They had a niece. Was that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who was advised, like, upon Polly's death to go through all of Polly's archives. And in doing so, found all this information about Polly's identity, but even more important, all of the accomplishments that we could attribute to Polly that they didn't ever really talk about.
1: Well, yeah, such as, uh, it was their idea of using the 14th Amendment for uh, women's rights, and of course, that was the same argument which we were able to use in that last uh, Supreme Court I'm forgetting the name of it but uh about uh, sex discrimination like that that was also that's all tied into uh Polly Murray's original ideas. So a fascinating person
0: and uh who did a lot of great work. I would recommend it.
1: Uh yeah, and I well you know the point, and somebody brings this up in there is like why we don't know who Polly Murray is and it there's some kind of anger and resentment in how the you know the consistent and constant erasure of anybody outside of the heteronormative realm, you know that like the, I, I can't believe that, that well there are w- a lot of factors
0: too because an interesting thing is Polly
1: went to law school at
0: Howard University and one of Polly's professors was Thurgood Marshall mm-hmm. and
1: even within that environment, Not professors, was at oh no, I'm
0: sorry, it was like one of the people who was like advising their law cohort, but even as a part of that group, because Polly was the only female as it were back then within her class and was still treated like
1: well she she called it Jane Crow,
0: yeah, yeah, so. Just very, very interesting and seemed to be a very, um... you know what I think about people like Polly is, what a life. mm -hmm. Like, what a life to think, like, because everyone's so selfish and so self-absorbed, right? Like, everyone likes to do their thing, right? Like, all you care about is doing the things that you like to do, and and that's all of us. Like, obsessed with movies, obsessed with reading, obsessed with cars, obsessed with the gym. And it's like, that doesn't mean anything to anyone except you, or me, or... And then there's, like, there are people out there who really just think, like, I need to do, like, like I need to be active to improve a quality of life for everyone. And it, and everyone talks, like, yeah, we support this, and, and this is right, and this is right, but no one really does the work. No one does the work. We all just, like, pay lip service to everything. I wouldn't say that there are... Who does the work? Because, you know... <laughs> Fucking playing some dodgeball tournament to raise money for, you know, like AIDS walk or something. Like like once a year is not being an activist. Well, I would say
1: that those things are important, but maybe not enough if that's all you do.
0: Sure, but what I'm saying is many people who... Most people aren't doing the most they can do. Most most people aren't even doing enough to seem like they give a shit because just saying that,
1: and I'm part of that group. I I hear you, but I think that's a little dismissive because you don't you don't know what what every person is or is not doing, and what they're doing is different. What what you can do is different for everybody in their own capacity, and what they can. Cause, what I'm
0: saying is that if you if if you care about something as much as you care about whatever hobby you have, and I'm talking to everyone, like whether it's movies or reading or baking or whatever the hell you love to do, riding your bike, brewing beer. I mean, I don't fucking know. It's like gardening. People have a passion for these things and they spend so much time and energy and it's like, well, what's more important than that? Like, Human rights, civil rights, right? Like, all of, all of these things are more important and very few people actually... So you're right. I don't know what everyone's doing. But if if you person over here who all you talk about is gardening, right? There are people I work with who like... Like, gardening is very important. They talk about it a lot. And it's like, okay, so... If... You're right. People don't necessarily... like it's appropriate to constantly talk about the activism they engage in but what i'm saying is that it it doesn't seem like it's possible logistically for people to have that same sort of enthusiasm and vigor for these causes that they do for their gardening or their biking or their like like clay work or whatever (laughs) so that's what i'm basing it off of that who really talks about this shit paulie did Oh, for sure. Polly was out here talking that shit all the time. You couldn't get a word in edgewise without her talking about how this isn't right and we need to do this. And I just, I find that very um, inspiring and also makes me feel like shit because, but not, not like Polly is doing the work and I even admire people who are doing shit that I don't necessarily agree with because at least they're passionate. Like, like at least they're out here trying to fight for something.
1: I find it very interesting. Sure but part of it part of it, if you have any kind of platform, is to be speaking to your beliefs and what you agree you know there are what I'm trying to say is there are many ways that that kind of work can be done, and we can't you know she did sacrifice all of her time, like I had to laugh at one person describing her as impatient and drinking coffee all day and night <laughs> um, right, which sounds familiar, but uh. We, we can't all do that. And I think that if you do what you can.
0: No, no. I think we... I think complacency is dangerous. I'm saying what percentage of people... What, what percentage do people spend actually doing things that make a difference? Because what there's a difference between what's important to you and then what makes a difference. The fact that you love baking bread doesn't mean anything. Except that that explains why you're overweight. Like, just, like I'm not saying you bake bread, but like there are people who are very we're passionate that, about that I'm overweight. or or the people like are very passionate about like olive oil or sure, 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 whatever CGI. bullshit you're into. Like I want, like I love horror films, and that's all I talk about, and that's all I watch. It's like, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. That's just something you really enjoy, and it's like all of that energy, like you don't put that towards things that towards things that matter. And I think that's most people. And so it's just very interesting and admirable to watch people who really seem to understand that we should probably, and and I don't know, this is up for debate, I don't know that I'm always right or or right about this thing, but it just seems like, shouldn't we exert most of our energy towards things that matter?
1: Yes. And make a
0: difference? Yes. And not just like, because I really like cheese... I'm going to spend all this time fucking sampling
1: cheese. Right, but there also is a a balance that is needed in all things in moderation, and people do need escapism. It's just that... Yeah, but how much time do you spend
0: escaping is my question. You're right. That that is necessary. You go crazy. Right, right, but then, you know... But if you spend 99% of your time escaping...
1: Right, but (laughs) escaping can be... You know, like, if we're talking in the realm of cinema, you know, I think something like... Adults obsessed with Marvel and DC films that is total kind of fluff and doesn't really say anything about the real world we live in. Basis compared to other forms of uh, cinematic expression, which really are a reflection of uh, how the world we live in and that make you that move you to maybe want to do something else or think mm, about something, in a different sure, way or have something to say. Uh, I don't know that I think cinema is pure escapism in, or literature for that matter. I think that they are integral, uh, they are integral to our experience and understanding others. Uh, but yeah, but that's a very like, you're
0: assuming that people are, you're
1: managing our time. So how are we doing? We're doing just fine, but okay. I, I, I I just am not trying I'm trying to gently push back on you in that. No, you can, you can
0: totally disagree with me uh, and I don't I don't all, I, all I'm saying is it's very interesting to witness a person who really was sort of a fanatic about trying to make a difference. And that's not something we see a lot of because everyone is passionate about what they think they believe or what they do believe, but it's like, but you don't do shit about it. Right.
1: But I think more than shaming, it's, it's kind of coaching people to feel inspired to do that.
0: I'm not trying to shame. I'm just saying it's like, there's a difference between like, oh you you donated eight hours of your time to the Bernie Sanders campaign in 20s, whatever. Like,
1: that, but again, that, like, but it, like that doesn't mean anything. It, in, it doesn't in, mean anything in that, that having to make that statement or making that proclamation or making that social media post is is that feels like lip service because if you really are doing the work, you're doing it without any kind of need for feedback or... Uh, sure, you're right, yes. But that's what, what I'm saying. Like, you can't assume because people... No, can, we can't assume. Because... Like, not everything we do is is to be broadcast for everybody to... But I'm saying
0: that I don't do shit. I, like, I'm being honest. I don't do shit. I don't donate my time. I don't... I'm not an activist. I don't... I, I don't post a lot about political or social things because I... Because it would just be me paying lip service to things. So I'm very, like, sort of, like, superficial with my social media. And I, I just try to be humorous because I'm actually quite dark. So, like... I try to have a balance there, but, like, I'm saying that I know that I ain't shit when it comes to doing things that make a difference. And I just wonder, like, so all I'm saying is for me, watching this documentary about this person really made me think, like, like, I ain't shit. I don't do anything. Like, so I can say I believe in things, but what do I do to, like, support these things I believe in? How do I try to help people? Like, I don't do anything.
1: I really don't. I would say that because you are out here existing as your authentic self, sharing your views, which are.
0: I mean, I will still maintain I ain't shit, and like, I, 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 I think that I just try to be like, is, le- like, as. I don't want to be an obstacle to other people's happiness, and 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 I don't want to be an obstacle to fairness and equality. So, I try to be very open and and and. Uh, cooperative, but, you know, I'm not out here fighting the good fight. You know, I'm not fucking protesting anywhere and I'm not risking getting arrested or...
1: Anyhow, speaking of that, that segues into another screener we caught up on, Summer of Soul, directed by Questlove. Oh, Questlove.
0: He, Questlove himself is a very, um, just, he's such an interesting person. Like, his musicality, I do have to say that the you know he's part of the group the roots, and I think the roots are the first time I real and this makes me seem so stupid, but the roots I think like as an a teenager was the first time I realized like black people play instruments
1: and that <laughs> it's not like that was you didn't see the mile like, any of the old no
0: no I'm not talking about like you know Louis Armstrong or or no I know that like black people played instruments but it was just like watching black people play instruments in a way that wasn't like it was like new school kind sure of. sure like like it doesn't have to be jazz or blues oh okay sure that's what i meant i wasn't clear or, or hootie and the blowfish wow well, well hootie didn't play an instrument though <laughs> no. no but anyway so quest love uh it so th- this this documentary. Yeah,
1: it was John Waters' second favorite film of the year, which we still have to. And it's,
0: to it's about this series of concerts in
1: 1969, featuring uh, in Harlem. Yeah, featuring uh, all you know the Who's a compendium of uh, black artists, uh, and then of course was filmed, and nobody was interested in broadcasting it. And Woodstock, of course, became the uh, cultural uh, zeitgeist marker of that that summer and that era, which is such a shame uh but it, it was very very well edited put together that this, this footage and a lot of phenomenal performances um i will say you know the nina simone documentary uh i i remember there she used clips from this uh passage from this performance and in this context in summer of soul uh It feels like, because she's reading out a poem saying these things, and I don't know if that was clear to me in the Nina Simone documentary, which made her seem more mentally unbalanced. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, the Nina Simone, well, the scene you're talking about in particular, she's reading a poem from a black poet, a gentleman. And in the Nina Simone documentary, the soundbite that I think resonated or shocked us was that she told everyone, like, y'all ready to kill? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Something like that. But then in Summer of Soul, we we get the context, which is she says, I have a friend, this poet, whose name I should remember and I don't, and but he's unable to attend, so he sent me here with this Wait, poem no, to read.
1: isn't it Langston Hughes?
0: It is Langston Hughes. Because
1: <laughs> she's like, y'all know the poet Langston Hughes? No, she goes, y'all remember... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Lorraine rain is a raisin in the sun and there's like crickets and she goes, huh? <laughs> That's right. That's why I was
0: like, I know I should know. So, yes. So she says, Langston Hughes uh, sent me this poem. Uh, he couldn't attend, but he wanted to make sure I re- read it. So she reads this poem and she does a fantastic yeah. job. And then one of the lines is like, are you, are le- like, are you ready to kill? Or do some killing? Or yeah, something yeah. like that. So yeah, in... It's interesting how in the documentary about her, she was made to seem sort of like aggressive and Mm -hmm. unstable and, and, you know, maybe those things were true and she did suffer from mental illness, but in Summer of Soul, we really see that this particular soundbite, there was
1: context and it makes her sound much more, um, lucid. Did you, so, so we're winding down, we have two more films to talk about, but, uh, did you have any favorite parts from this documentary? Nina Simone. That was your favorite part? Yeah. My favorite part was Mahalia Jackson and Mavis oh,
0: Staples. Oh, Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples, yes. They sing a performance right after it was. everyone was made aware that MLK had been assassinated. So, yeah, that was beautiful.
1: Well, they sang the song that he was talking about yeah. right as he was assassinated, which leads in Mahalia Jackson. We, we hear the voice of Mavis Staples. Uh, she isn't allowing herself to be on, on film for this uh but talking about how Mahalia had, wasn't feeling well and she asked Mavis Staples to sing with her. And it's... Like, that's that's chills down your spine moment. Yeah. There. And, but... Oh, um, and uh, Sly and the... Uh, Family Stone. Family Stone, that was, I'd never seen uh, them sing before. Of course, you know those songs. Oh, I have but... to
0: give a shout out to Marilyn McCoo. She's also yeah. in the documentary and I've always really liked her. I've seen her in concert more than once and she is a gorgeous woman with a beautiful voice and hearing her talk about um, the concert series and her participation was really cool. We should move on.
1: Uh, lamb, I've got you to watch Lamb, starring. Sure, New- that movie was a joke. Numi Rapace, we- yeah. I we
0: I can't even. There's not enough time to even talk about it.
1: I I mean I didn't like that movie out of can, and it was so, it was all the hype because A24 had purchased it before. I can't
0: even say I would recommend people check it out because it's just so damn dry. The movie takes itself too seriously, and then you have this little like kid with a lamb head standing there like
1: pointing and grunting and shit it was the adult drama behind what's going on is so boring and dull and if I have to watch another movie with Numi where she can't give birth and has these weird mommy issues it's like I'm, I'm tired of that
0: yeah the adults are just so boring like I, the, I like
1: I don't care about her this hu- affair that you're
0: having or with her husband's or... brother
1: and uh, and then the weird you know sheep man thing that sired this this lamb child and that we all know is coming. You're gonna see. It, it just has no depth to it. It's to me. It's it's incredibly superficial. You know. I could. It could s- have been a short film. It could. It could have been something. If this should have. Why the fuck can't we write interesting characters anymore? These people should have played like Tennessee Williams. These fucking dysfunctional people out in the tundra uh, in Iceland. Uh, childless, have a dead kid, and then they have this lamb baby. And like also the fact that they have the like like the la- they don't have the lamb baby.
0: A lamb man creature impregnates a lamb and then a sheep, and then the sheep has the lamb baby. And then when Numi and her man see it, they're not like shocked. They they immediately are like,
1: "Take it out." The the only eerie element to me was the sheep, the mama sheep that kept crying for the baby, and then Numi kills it. That was the only part that was like, "Oh, okay, Uh, this is interesting." But yeah, because I remember I started it and you. I know I was cool on it out of can, but I was like maybe I was tired and cranky because sometimes that happens. But no, I I really didn't enjoy that film. Although in forty or fifty years I can see that being in a, co- a collection of folk horror, much like the one I'm saying I love so much. But uh, it it really is it's just very bare bones folk horror mythology that has nothing new to say. Uh, and our <laughs> we got to rush through our obituary section to talk about our. <laughs> Yeah, you have 11 minutes. Uh, well, Desmond
0: Tutu died this week. Who I've had the chance to see speak at Macalester College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. He died at the age of 90. Yeah. So he had a long, productive
1: life. The South African bishop. Uh, and uh, civil rights activist. And civil, yeah. Uh, Betty White died on New Year's Eve, 99 years old. Right on the eve of a few things, Betty. Um, uh, you know, of course, who isn't a fan of Betty White. Uh, But she was ninety nine. She lived a long life, and I'm sure she's at peace. She made many jokes and had many things to say about growing older. And you know, if you want to honor her, go watch her and you again opposite Sigourney Weaver. Um, And then, surprisingly, Jean-Marc Vallée, uh, who at the age of fifty-eight died. Um, I haven't checked up. My sister said she read it was a heart attack, but the uh, director from Quebec, uh, who directed many very notable films, started out with Crazy and The Young Victoria before becoming uh, quite big in Hollywood with the Dallas Buyers Club and uh, Demolition and Wild and a couple very notable television series like the first season of Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects. Um, I find a lot of his stuff kind of overproduced, but um, Café de Flore sticks out as something interesting with Vanessa parody But yeah, it's shocking and sad. Hmm. I, mean, I don't know who
0: that is, so... <laughs> I don't know. Was he living right? I don't know. Because that's pretty young to
1: die. Um, anyway, keep it moving. Uh, the, the Technically, the secret film of the week, which you finished watching today, was Midnight in the Switchgrass. Okay.
0: What made you want to rent that?
1: Well, I talked about it when it was in production, um, this podcast, so of course, which you don't remember. Uh, we have no time, but this movie was some bullshit. It was the directorial it, debut of Randall Emmett, who some might know uh, due to his uh, online scuffle with 50 Cent. And uh, I'm sorry, forgive me, Fofty. I recall something like that, but I don't know what it was about. He's uh, a producer. He made, the, But so he made this film that's very bad. Okay, this film is about... it.
0: So it has some notable people. Bruce Willis, Megan Fox, Emile Hirsch, Lucas Haas... Um, Machine Gun Kelly. Machine Gun Kelly's in it. But Bruce Willis and Megan Fox play Fed... FBI agents. FBI agents who are do We find them doing like a pedophile sting, sting on a pedophile ring or something in Flor- northern Florida. Pensacola. And, and it's set in 2004. And they're looking for one person in particular. Then we have Emile Hirsch playing a... He's a, like a Florida state officer who's also looking for like the person who's responsible for this missing girl. Oh my God. And then the killer we find out is Lucas Haas like right away. Yeah. So there's no real tension except like, when is he going to get caught? And the opening of the film is Emile Hirsch's character talking to this mom and she says like, promise me you'll, Like, when you find out what happened to my daughter, you're going to come knock on my... When you
1: catch this guy.
0: You're going to come knock on my door and tell me. So, obviously, the end of the film is going to be that, and that's what it is. But it there's nothing to tell. Like, Megan Fox and Emile Hirsch's character end up finding Lucas Haas, who we already know is the killer. uh, The end. Bruce Willis... Uh, doesn't have anything to do. He's like her partner. He's her partner, but he decides that he doesn't want to work with her because she's like volatile. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I know we reviewed a movie with her. We reviewed two movie with, movies with her. And I said the same thing in both that like she has no personality. Like she's so flat. And people get so mad about that. And they, it's like, well, this is the third movie now I've seen her in. They do? Yeah, people comment like that. Oh, Rogue Until Death. Yeah, and it's like she's gorgeous, but that of lady course. is so damn flat.
1: She, at first, there are a couple sequences.
0: There were a couple scenes where it was like, "Oh, she's giving us a little something,"
1: but it, it just ended up with at the po- at the point in the end where she's coaching the other captive girl because she also gets abducted and drugged and abducted by Lucas Haas, and she's telling her to leave. You couldn't tell her more monotonously. <laughs> she's like,
0: she literally, she's like, "You have to promise me." you'll do whatever it takes to get out of here. <laughs> oh, and then when she... And they're both being held captive in a damn basement.
1: And she's talking to her so flat and, like, calmly. When, she, when she shows up on the uh, crime scene and explains what her job is on this case with the FBI. The
0: writing in this movie is cockadoo. It's
1: dri- written by somebody named Alice Horse, Alan Horsenail, who wrote... Alice Horsenail? Alan Horsenail. Alan Horsenail? The line's getting to me. So Alan, Alan Hoove. Alan Horsenail uh, who directed or wrote another film called Fortress starring Bruce Willis. Alan, this is going
0: to be another example of me saying like this movie is written like if I wrote a movie,
1: which is not good. This is written like <laughs> the very first draft of a script where you really have no idea who the characters are. I don't
0: understand why we have two agents who are so invested in catching this killer. It just feels like redundant. Emile Hirsch's giving Okay, so apparently he got in trouble for something.
1: Emil Hirsch, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was at that Sundance Film Festival where he sexually assaulted... I don't remember what happened. So that fucked his career up. Yeah, that, that fucked him Man, up. Man,
0: yeah. this is... People, y'all need to keep your hands to yourself and stop harassing these people because, like, this is embarrassing. Yeah. Because wasn't... He was on the rise
1: at one point. Yeah, he, well, he played Sigourney Weaver's son in Imaginary Heroes.
0: Mm -hmm. No, but what was
1: like his big role, like his breakout role? Uh, Well, he was in Milk. Milk.
0: That wasn't a good movie, though. Yeah, it was. Oh, no, I'm thinking of uh, uh,
1: Stonewall. Oh, yeah, Stonewall's crap.
0: Yeah, so this is what happens when y'all are out here sexually assaulting people. You end up having to do these terrible-ass movies.
1: Oh, my God. That was bad. Lucas Hawes looks crazy. As usual, but, Um, uh, you know, when you
0: hire him. And Bruce Willis is... uh, he has like four scenes, and they're like two of them are him like on the su- scene with her, and they're both the same exact scene, and then them sitting in a restaurant talking, mm-hmm. and then his final scene is him saying like, "You know what? I can't work with you anymore." He just gets yeah. up.
1: Yeah. Like the editing in this is quite terrible. Oh, the editing is like there's, they're trying to cover
0: up a lot of mistakes. There's or a
1: something. scene where Megan. Fox kicks Machine Gun Kelly's ass and the edit, it looks like it was shot in 16, 17 takes. And that Machine Gun
0: Kelly, I don't, I mean, I know he's dating or in a married to Megan Fox, but like this, he plays like, uh, like a sex trafficker mm-hmm. and it's like so... This was the movie that you thought, like, let me go ahead and play this despicable
1: character? I don't think it was worth it, but... He's hardly, this film's... They, then they have a small child, Lucas Haas' daughter, is reading Watership Down as an eight-year-old, but then is talking to her her toy, calling it Mr. Ball. That Again, it just feels very much like uh, the writer did not... Uh, characterize any of these people at all and it feels like oh god and then emile hirsch is married to this woman and they have a, a oh marked. my
0: god there are like three scenes she where like
1: calls him she's like your baby's being fussy come home no she and then she keeps saying
0: yes yeah, she says that and she keeps there are like three scenes where the wife is telling him like we need
1: you we need you you told me you were with your units make this family number one it's like well what about money <laughs> I don't know. It oh, just, that I,
0: is so poorly done. It, okay, that being said, I do think this movie is worth a watch because I was amused because it is bad.
1: <laughs> it, yes, and it delivered... The the title has something to do with the very first scene where the mother of a dead girl says her dad would drunkenly try to get at her and her sister and they'd they'd hide in the switchgrass until he fell asleep around midnight. Uh, yeah, just... It should have been called Pensacola Prostitutes.
0: That would have been better. This podcast is a mess. Uh, well, I, I'm delirious. I'm tired. Um, but, you know, here we are. The, the cat's being bad. Uh,
1: what, <laughs> what's your quote? Um, besides, I'm a former scientist. Uh, what's that from? That song, Wheel Me Out. Wheel Me Out. Oh, yes. Who's a buy? I don't remember, oh. but it's funny. Uh, Betty White's uh, words will close us out today. Get at least eight hours of beauty sleep. Nine if you're ugly. Oh, how many flowers do you get? I get about four or five.
0: You get about four. Well, no, you... Well, probably four.
1: Well, according to Betty's metrics, that means I'm doing just fine. <laughs> okay.
0: Anything else?
1: No. Bye.
0: I do 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 do